Morning. Okay, today we're going to finish the Hope series over First and Second Thessalonians. I've been um, kind of battling back and forth in my mind. There's come down to two uh, different things I was thinking about preaching the next time. I think we're going to be in James after this. Uh, I haven't preached that in about 20 years because the last time I did, everybody's like, stop, all the trials and stuff are coming, but it is what it is. Okay, so today we're going to finish this, uh, this Hope series over First and Second Thessalonians. So this is the last time I'll have to do this quick, brief recap for you. Uh, so, uh, before I go on, I want to tell you this. The reason I wasn't going around again today and shaking hands <laughs> was because there's someone in my house that's sick. I'm fine, but I don't want anybody accusing me of nothing. So, anyway, I, I don't want, you know, the sick patrol dropping down with SWAT team through my windows and stuff. Anyway, okay, so we're going to finish up this series today. This, this young church was established by Paul uh, on one of his missionary journeys, uh, and he was only there three weeks, which is pretty short for amount of time for him normally. Uh, but he was ran out of town because the townspeople didn't like him bringing his faith into, the, into their community because it was changing people's lives, and they didn't like it. Uh, but he made a huge impact during that three weeks because during that three weeks, uh, this church really uh, cemented together. They became a very tight-knit unit, and they were very effective, and they did a great job and very passionate. Uh, and they were probably one of the most effective churches going at that time, even against other churches who had been there much, much longer. So because of that, Paul really wanted to invest in them. Uh, he really felt like they had a great future, and that's what these two letters were designed to do, was kind of invest in them. Now, uh, the overriding theme uh, of these two uh, books that we've been through, or two letters to the Thessalonians, is that they, uh, he wanted to teach them to be prepared for the return of Jesus, because Paul really believed it could happen any day. And since this was such a young and effective church, he thought, you guys really need to stay busy like you are, because any moment the Lord could come back, and he really believed that. Now today, Paul's going to give some final instructions, uh, and some of these are pretty harsh. Um, and so sometimes when you go through sections like this, people get kind of frustrated, but the truth is that uh, you've got to give the bitter and the sweet when you're teaching the Word of God, and, and you can tell here he had to drop some of the bitter, because some of this is pretty harsh, uh, because today he's going to deal with people who have been lazy or idle uh, within the church. And so he's going to handle that, uh, because if this new church was going to survive, they were just going to have to, they were going to, have to work. Uh, so I titled today's message, Farewell and Final Instructions. Okay, now let's move in. Let's jump right in. Today, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. It says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. So it's kind of interesting here. The first thing that Paul asked for is prayer as he's getting ready to close this out, which is not that uncommon. Paul asked for prayer a lot in his letters and in his writings. But here he was pretty specific. Uh, he said uh, to pray that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. And I like how he says that because it sounds like he's almost talking about a person when he's talking about the Word. It sounds like he's talking about something that's alive. It doesn't sound like an inanimate object, and that's because the Word of God is alive, and Paul understood that. And he also understood that the, the Word is what's active in this world making changes, right? If you look at Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 11, it says, For the Word of God is what? Living and active. Living and active. And sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, uh, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to do. Now, so God's word is actually the convincing agent that drives us back into a relationship with God. It's what calls unbelievers to believe. The word of God does that. It convinces people uh, to believe, and that's very, very important. But it also strengthens people, 
right? It, it also prepares believers to deal with a myriad of situations from persecution uh, to raising children. There's so many different things that it prepares us for, uh, but it is alive. And Paul was saying, listen, pray that we efficiently and effectively preach the word of God. Because Paul knew that all they had to do was preach it accurately, and the word of God would do the rest. See, one of the things I think people forget, especially in this new era we're entering where everything's about entertainment, which I'm not against entertainment, don't take me wrong, but the, the, I think people forget that preach the word in truth in its entirety, and God will take care of the rest. It's when you start trying to hide truths and when you start trying to soft shoe around difficult issues or skipping pl- things because you don't want to offend people, it's when you do that that you cause problems. All we have to do is pretty simple. Pastors don't have to reinvent the wheel. Preach the word. And this is what Paul was saying. Pray that when I preach it, I preach it effectively, and I know if I do that the word will do the absolute rest for me. I won't have to worry about it. Uh, then he added, this is pretty cool, he said, just as it did with you. Okay, and that is a huge, huge compliment. Because what he was saying is, I pray that our preaching is as effective as yours has been. And he's saying this to a, a very young church. This is a seasoned apostle saying this to a very young church. This was a huge compliment. He's saying, pray that our ministry is as effective as yours as we continue to go on, which is absolutely huge. That's a big deal. I mean, when the teacher prays to be as effective as the student, I think that's a big compliment, don't you? And so that's kind of what he was doing here. He's saying, we want to be as effective as you have been here. And he also told him that he wanted him to pray for the safety of, his, of he and his companions. If you look at 2 Thessalonians 3, 2, he says, And that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. See, Paul knew that there were still enemies of God out there. I mean, there's still enemies of God out there today. And he knew they were out there, and he knew that they would love nothing more than to make their uh, mission fail. He knew that they would love nothing more than to, you know, to malign the teachings and try to destroy uh, this, this Christianity before it actually gets legs and gets off the ground. And so he was really, really worried that, that those people would still be out there wanting to, <clears throat> wanting to attack him, so he wanted them to pray that, you know, that they would be rescued from those people. And he described them as, uh, those enemies of the gospel, as perverse and evil men. And I thought about that quite a bit, and I didn't even put this in my outline, but, I, you know, the perverse kind of rings true of the, of the pagans in that area because they were involved in some very sexually immoral and perverse practices, uh, and in the name of their gods, uh, and the evil men, in my opinion, were probably, I mean, not just everybody, but probably focusing on the Jews, because at that time, they were the ones that were really rejecting the teachings. So he's saying, deliver us from the pagans and the Jews, basically, is what we want you to pray, that God will give us the ability to be delivered from them, because he knew that their battle wasn't over. Listen, if, if you're serving God, and you think you're not going to be persecuted, you have another thing coming. It's going to happen. If it happened to Jesus, it's going to happen to us. You know, and if you, when people tell me I've never been persecuted, I say, well, then you must not be doing anything. Because, you know, if you're doing something, the enemy's going to check you on that, and he's going to try to try to get you to shut up. So that's something pretty common. But now Paul had a balance, a delicate balance here he had to worry about. Because he was afraid that if he made it sound too bad out there, you know, he's saying that we are delivered from evil and perverse men. He didn't want that to be an excuse for them to say, well, maybe we shouldn't do any more. We don't want to stir the hornet's nest up. So he kind of dealt with that. If you look at verse 3, he said, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. You see him consoling them there. He says, uh, We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you, are doing, uh, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. 
So he didn't want that prayer request to knock them off, you know, off, their, uh, off their track because they were doing so well. Uh, he just, that was just a prayer request. And he was saying, listen, but I don't want you to worry. You guys are doing great. God has used you in huge ways. And I want you guys to keep doing what you're doing because, yeah, the enemy's trying to attack you even right now, but he's failing because you're staying faithful. That's the thing. Yeah, we're going to be persecuted, but if we stay faithful during the persecution, God's going to bring us through it. It's just a matter of time. He never abandons us, and we'll look at that more as we move on here. But I th- honestly, I think that, you know, as tough as ministry can be, as long as we keep the right mentality, we always come through it well, right? Because it's only when people forget who and why they're serving God that ministry goes awry. And sometimes people do. Sometimes churches start off with a great intention, then it ends up being about money and power and clout in the community, or it ends up being about fame. Or, or, and when it gets off track like that, that's when the ministry's in danger. But no matter how many people persecute you, if you're doing what's right, God's going to protect you. He's just going to protect you, and that's what he's trying to remind them of. Now, I'm going to kind of get into the heart of the message here. If you look at verse 6, he says, Now we command you, uh, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away, underscore that if you're following along, keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, you can underscore that too, and not according to the traditions which you receive from us. Okay, so now Paul's getting down to kind of his important section uh, this this message he really needed to get out this is a very very important instructional section for the leadership in this church right so he instructs the thessalonian church to keep away from certain believers keep away from certain believers now people hear that and they think that seems kind of rough but i mean hang in there the phrase keep away in the greek is the word stello and it means to avoid or to shun okay now when we hear that immediately we get a negative connotation in our mind it seems really harsh until you consider who he's actually talking about, and he'll explain that. Paul said, keep away from the one who leads an unruly life. Okay, an unruly life. Now, the Greek word for unruly is a taktos, and it means lazy, idle, or idleness. So when he's saying keep away from people who live, you know, uh, unruly lives, he's saying stay away from lazy people. That's what he's saying, stay away from lazy people. In essence, he's saying avoid the lazy Christian among you. Avoid them. Right now, the context here is not spiritual laziness. He's not talking about not having a willingness to serve. The context here is actually being lazy with everything they do. Their work ethic is what this is talking about. He's like, avoid lazy Christian people who don't work hard in the community. Uh, and here's why Paul all of a sudden brought that up. Because when you're reading that and you find out that means laziness, you're like, why all of a sudden is he talking about lazy Christians? Well, some of the Thessalonians at that time, had taken this Jesus is coming back any minute thing too far. And there's always radicals in every religion and around the world. There are always radicals, unfortunately. And that's always who they bring up when they want to talk to you. When the world wants to talk to you, they always bring up the nut job they met, don't they? The one that did something weird. They want to bring up Jim Jones or somebody like that. Um, but the truth of the matter is, there's, it's, it's always going to have those people that are on the fringe. Well, they had them in Thessalonica. And what happened was they were hearing that the Lord was coming back any minute. So they said, here's what we're going to do. Let's quit our jobs and sit around and wait for Jesus to come get us. And that was literally what some of them were doing. They quit working. And were like packing their bags, waiting for the Jesus train to come. You know what I mean? And just stop totally. And that sounds real spiritual, but it really isn't. Because while they're waiting, they still have to eat, right? They still have to have clothes. And they still have provisions that need, you know, taken care of. So... 
what happens is they quit their jobs and they start living off of other people's generosity. There's a really, I mean, a really complicated but important word for that. Mooch. They were becoming mooches. They were saying, well, we can't work because they're waiting on Jesus. I don't know why those people didn't say, so am I, and I have a job, and you be, better be thankful because I'm feeding you, right? So that's what he was talking about. They had become lazy in their daily lives. They stopped working. Listen, now this is not in the Bible. I want you guys to realize this. This is not in the Bible. You ever heard, heard the, the phrase, God helps those who help themselves? Not in the Bible, in any context, anywhere whatsoever. But the concept is taught in Scripture. The concept of God blesses those who are trying to do more, uh, that's in there. So this is kind of why Paul brought this up. I, I don't think Paul was just saying, I must want to pick on lazy people. That's not what it was. Paul was concerned about the outsiders. Because the outsiders at that time, those evil and perverse men, were watching this young church and trying to find anything they could to defame this church, to tear it down, to start bad rumors about it, to make people not want to follow Christians. So the reason this was so important was he knew those outsiders were watching those lazy people and going, look, yeah, that's your Christians for you. Look at them laying around mooching off each other. That's what Christians are. And he was afraid that would spread because they were looking for any reason they could to discredit this young and powerful church, right? And, and these apparent, you know, the laziness of these radicals really gave them some good ammo, because I'm sure many, many times when people were talking about how God changed lives to someone and witnessing, they probably said, oh yeah, God changed lives, like those lazy people that you have in your community that do nothing but walk around and mooch off everybody. Is that, what, is that how Jesus changes lives? That's why Paul was so concerned. He didn't want that to happen. And sadly, you know, the world still loves to point out any flaw that we have. And I don't know if you realize that, but you are being watched. That sounds really creepy when I say that, doesn't it? But you're being watched all the time. <laughs> but they are watching everywhere we go. As soon as someone finds out you're a believer, they are watching everything you do. And still, when a believer is lazy, it gives the world ammo. And I'm telling you right now, I worked with some people in, in the factories that were, that were lazy, and they were Christians. And they were mocked, and when you would start talking about God, they'd go, oh yeah, like your buddy over there, the one that you know, takes two-hour bathroom breaks, is that the one you're talking about? <laughs> I'm like going, well, great. I didn't know there were two hours either. But still, that's, a, that's what happens. They still want to find something to pick us apart. And this is still a big problem. Because let's face it, no one likes working with lazy people. Do they? Does anybody here say, I want a job where I do all the work, and everybody watches me, and sits in each Cheetos and does nothing. Where do I get that job? I want to be underpaid to do more. Nobody wants that. Everyone hates working with lazy people. And no one respects lazy people. And I'll explain that as we get further down here. You're going, wow, you're bashing lazy people. Correct. Anyway. So, next Paul. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my remorse. So, next Paul reminded them that they should follow he and his companions' example. Now, this is huge. One thing I love about Paul's ministry is he wasn't afraid to say, do what I do. How many people can honestly say that when you're talking to someone about their faith, you say, do what I do? That's not cocky. That's confident. He knew he was doing the best he could do. So let's look at this, starting in verse 7. He says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. 
But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would, not, uh, so that you would follow our example. So when Paul and, and his disciples, which remember, again, disciples, from the Greek word metanoia, just means pupils, followers. Uh, but Paul's followers, his disciples, when he and his disciples would go into a town, they would work. Most towns they would go into, they would work. Uh, Paul was a tent maker by trade. They all had personal trades that they, that they could uh, apply and, and use when they were in a community. Uh, and when they were in a community that merited it, they would work, and they would work hard. And they did that so that no one on the outside would question their motives. Because they were hoping they could say, look, they do it for the money. Right? And we still get that today. But that's what they were hoping they would say about him. And when Paul was in a community where he felt like that was a danger, he made sure that he worked hard and paid for everything he had. Now, they also did that because they didn't want to be a burden to this new church. Now realize, this new church probably didn't have the resources to actually compensate them very well. It was a new church, and, but they were doing really well, and he was willing to make his own way so he wouldn't be a burden to them with their lack of resources. Now, he made it clear that he had the right to receive compensation. Whenever he talks about denying compensation, he always immediately afterwards says, now I have the right to have, be compensated for ministry. He's saying, I have the right to be, to be paid to be in ministry. And oftentimes when you're reading his letters, you'll see that, you know, churches in Macedonia and other places were sending funds to him to help him uh, to exist. They were taking care of him. So he said, I have the right to do that, but he chose to forego that compensation. And there were many reasons I think he did that. But I think probably the biggest reason was he wanted to earn the outsider's respect. When they see this man that's preaching the gospel, that's loving people, leading people to Christ, yet working hard by, and, and paying for his own bread and setting an example you respect hard workers, don't you? You don't even have to like them as a person. But if they're a hard worker, you respect the fact that they're a hard worker. I think Paul wanted to gain the respect of the people in that area so that he would have a better and a stronger testimony with them. Because again, I mean, laziness is not an admirable or, a, or a highly sought after trait in the workplace. It's just, it's just not. And that's why believers should never be lazy. It actually damages our testimony. Right Now, this is not me giving you fodder to judge other people's laziness. That's not why I'm telling you this. I'm telling you this so that you can check yourself and see within yourself if you're doing what you need to do and if you're working hard so that people will respect you. That's, that's why I'm telling you this. But the Bible's very clear about what God feels about laziness. All right, now let's look at some of these, okay? Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, what? As for the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than what? Than an unbeliever. Now people hear that and they say, so he's saying lazy people aren't saved. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. Here's the thing. As believers, we're supposed to imitate God. Right? Now, we're never going to be the perfect imitation right, or representation, but we're supposed to try. Right? God always provides for his own. God never fails to provide for his people. So if you're acting like God, like you're supposed to be, you will always provide for your people or try to. If you are not trying to provide for your people, then you are not acting like God. You're acting like the other team. You see what I'm saying? So he's not saying you're not saved. He's saying you're a believer who's acting like you're not saved because you're acting like the world. You're not acting like God. That's what he means there by denying the faith that is worse than an unbeliever. Uh, Proverbs 10.4. Poor is he who works 
uh, with a negligent hand, uh, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. I like that. He's saying, listen, if you don't work, you're not going to get anything. If you want to be blessed in this world, work. That's the that's Chris Mosley version. Now, when you go back to our main text, Paul made this really, really obvious that he was being dead serious here. Right? He was being dead serious. He was saying, this can't be tolerated in a church. Look at this, 2 Thessalonians 3.10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. That should be some incentive, I would think. Right? He's saying, if you don't work, don't eat. And that's not him being mean. That's saying, if you're not paying for your bread, don't steal it from somebody who is working. That's what he's saying. Right? Paul said that if someone doesn't work, you get the fruits of not working, which is nothing. He's saying that's what you get. Now, here's, the, here's kind of the mentality behind that. If they were to feed and house these people who were not working, these radicals who were not working, just sitting around waiting for Jesus to take them on, if they were to do that, it is enabling them is what it's doing. Why would they get a job if they were going to take care of them, feed them, house them, give them everything they needed? Why would they get a job? Hmm, let's tear this down a little bit. If, let's say the government, just throwing it out there. Let's say the government paid a lot of money for people to stay home. It'd probably be really tough, just hypothetically speaking. It'd probably be really tough to get them to go back to work when they've been paid for doing nothing for a long time. And, you know, hypothetically, if that were to happen in a society, it could probably make businesses struggle, restaurants struggle, factories struggle. It could make inflation increase. It could make prices go up, hypothetically speaking, <laughs> if a government were to do that. That's kind of the same thing that Paul is talking about here. He's saying don't create a welfare state among the Christian people. Don't do that. You need to stay on them. It, listen, if they're trying to find work, it's okay. Feed them. They're trying. If they're injured and can't work, hey, it's all about you know, taking care of the brother. You take care of them. But if they can work and just won't, he's saying don't tolerate that. If they don't work, neither shall they eat. Right? And that's, that's harsh, but is it not true? I mean, I've, there couldn't be a better time for me to preach this, could there? I mean, do you think there's a better time for me to preach this? Hypothetically speaking, <laughs> you know? Because uh, I better move on, or I'm going to get in trouble. All right, let's move on. Hypothetically speaking. But, so Paul even gets more personal, and he gets more specific, and I think this is kind of funny. Take a look at this, 2 Thessalonians 3.11. He says, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing what? No work at all, but acting like busybodies. Oh, I can't wait to talk about that. Verse 12. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. So Paul made it clear that, listen, I know some of you are doing this. Because, like, before I close these letters out, I want you to know you have not escaped my attention. And if he knew about it, it, people must have been talking about it. They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have cell phones. You know what I mean? They didn't have snail mail, really. I mean, you had to find out from word of mouth. So evidently, it had gotten back to Paul that there were lazy people there. And he's wanting them to know, listen, you didn't get away with anything. I know exactly what you're doing. Right? And he's saying, some of you are just lazy and you're being busybodies. 
Because here's the thing, when, you, when you're lazy, <laughs> I feel like I use that word a lot. When you're lazy, here's what happens. The time you should be using to work, you usually end up doing one of three things to fill that time. Okay? One is gossip. If you have nothing to do, you will have a lot to say. Right? Because what else are you going to do? Right? Gossip's one of the things you see. Stir the pot. Right? A lot of times people, have you ever heard somebody say, don't you have anything better to do? If you're not working, you'd say, no. I guess I don't. Right? Stir the pot. That's another thing. And <laughs> the other thing's pretty simple. You're either going to stir the pot, you gossip, or you're just getting in everybody else's business. Nosy. Right? Anybody ever know a nosy Christian? Probably not. Anybody here know one? You're afraid to say, are they sitting by you? Blink if it's them. I'm just kidding. Right, so <laughs> I'm just saying that's usually what ends up happening, and none of those help the image of a believer. In fact, they actually damage it. So knowing that, Paul commanded them to work in a quiet fashion. I want to explain what he means there when he says work in a quiet fashion. Basically, he said work hard, mind your business, and shut your pie hole. That's how I would have wrote it. That's what he was saying. Work hard, mind your own business, and keep your mouth shut. Listen, don't run around shooting your mouth off and giving the Christians a bad name. Just do your job, keep your head down, live the life, talk about Jesus, shut your pie hole. That's what he's basically saying. And he's warning them, listen, hardworking believers, he didn't want them to lose hope. He's saying, listen, I'm not talking to you. I want you to stay focused. I want you to stay focused on what you're doing. Because God will bless you for that. Because here's the thing. He said he didn't want them to grow weary in doing good. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but... Have you ever been doing things to the best of your ability? You feel like you're on fire for God. Everything seems to be going well in your personal ministry, and things keep going wrong at the same time. And sometimes it's persecution. Sometimes it's people talking bad about you. Sometimes it's, it, you know, it's just tragic events. And if you're not careful, the devil's whispering in your ear the whole time, well, look what happens. Aren't you thankful you serve God? Look at this. Everybody's picking on you. You lost people. lost your job. Uh, how's that working out for you? That's what the, the devil's going to be whispering in your ear. And some of these people were probably looking at these lazy people and going, well, this doesn't seem fair. I'm killing myself here trying to, trying to make a living and trying to, you know, share the gospel. And this guy's just going around living off everybody. Well, maybe I should just go around and live off everybody. And he's saying, listen, don't do that. He's saying, the rest of you, don't grow weary in doing good. He's saying, remember who you serve. You're not doing it for any other reason than to please God. And God always rewards those who try to do the best they can. He always rewards those people, not only in this life, but in the next life. So Paul was saying, just remember, God sees it. God will reward it. Don't grow weary in doing good. That's what he was saying. Now, let's move to the next section, starting in verse 14. He says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as what? As an enemy, that's really important, but admonish him as a brother. So Paul said we shouldn't associate with those who ignore obedience to God, those who are ignoring the instructions they were given, which was from God. Now, like the phrase we saw in verse 1 where it says keep away, Paul used the word do not associate with them. It's similar but a little bit different. Uh, the word associate doesn't mean, uh, do, when he says do not associate, it doesn't mean totally ignore. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean treat them poorly or be mean to them. That's not what it means. Now, the word associate in verse 14, I'm going to give you a Greek word, and I should, I should test you next week and see if you can remember this. Because I'm not going to lie, this is really hard to say. 
Okay, but the word associate is sunanamignumi. Everybody got that? <laughs> I'm dying for somebody to learn that word because it took me a long time. Okay, but uh, sunanamignumi means to hang out with or do activities with. So when he says don't associate, what he was saying is any believers who defy God, don't hang out with them. Don't hang out with them and, and, and don't act like everything's okay. Don't do activities with them. And the reason why is it's not, you're try, it's not like you're trying to be mean. He just doesn't want you to enable them. Listen, a good friend can love someone while warning them about what's dangerous in their life. A good friend doesn't ignore what's dangerous in your life, even your spiritual life, because they're afraid of hurting your feelings. A good friend will tell you if you're doing something they're afraid is going to end up harming you, right? I mean, you should still love and pray for people who are in that situation. I'm sure that's what Paul wanted, but he didn't want them to hang out and act like they approved of their disobedience. He's like, they got to know you disapprove. I mean, the first thing you should do is explain why you're disassociating with them. You don't just start ignoring them like a, you know, a sophomore in high school and start you know, ignoring them in the hallway. That's not what he's talking about. He didn't say that. First, you should explain why you're disassociating with them. And then Paul said to admonish them, admonish them them. And this is new through Teo, and it means to warn them. That's all it means. So say, listen, I can't hang out with you when you're living that kind of life, because it can be damaging not just to you, but to our faith. And he said, I'm warning you. Uh, uh, you got to come out of that, because God can't bless you like that. You know what people would say about that person? They're judgmental. That's not being judgmental. That's trying to help someone get out of a bad situation. He's warning them, saying, listen, I'm not, I can't do those things like you do. That's wrong, and God's going to end up, I don't want to be disciplined for it. I don't want you to be disciplined for it. So he's saying, don't treat them like an enemy. Don't be mean to them, but be loving enough to warn them. Listen, do you feel like you're being mean if someone in your family is starting to form an addiction and you warn them that they could end up being full-blown addicted? Is that being mean? Is it mean to suggest someone with an eating disorder go get help? Is that mean? Is it mean to walk up and say, I think you need to get some help, you know, if they're anorexic or bulimic or whatever? Is it mean if, if you know someone has an abusive situation to try to help them get out of it? It's okay to, to point out things in people's lives if you're trying to help them, right? This is what Paul's saying. Don't make them an enemy, but just tell them, I can't approve of what you're doing. I love you. I'll pray for you. But what you're doing is going to end to God's discipline. I'm warning you. You've got to be careful with what you're doing. That's what he's telling them. He's saying, don't just hang out with them. And listen, it, I know this sounds harsh, but if you have people in your life that are pulling you away from God, if, if their life is a life that pulls you away from God, you need to pull away from them. All right, and you need to do that thing in your mind, do the assessment. Is it better to be pleasing to them or pleasing to God? Now, when you pull away from them, that doesn't mean totally ignore them and hate them, still love them, pray for them, reach out to them, but you can't allow them to lead you their way. You see what I mean? Because, listen, you're either pulling them your way or they're pulling you their way. Right? And that's why you need to evaluate who you hang out with, and this is what he's talking about here. Now, don't email me. I'm not saying to ignore people. It's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying to judge people. I don't want everybody leaving here calling everybody they know and going, well, Pastor Chris says, if I love you, by the way, your breast stinks, and I don't think you clean your house. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> not those things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you see something in their life, they're thinking about having an affair. You should say something. If you see someone that has started to drink too much, say something. If you see someone, you know, that's struggling with their faith, say something to them if they start to act like the world again. Warn them if you see them struggling. That's what he's talking about there. Okay, now, starting in verse 16, let's move to the final section here. This is final farewell. 
He says, now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write these greetings with my own hand, and this uh, is a distinguishing mark uh, in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So Paul finished his second letter by, first of all, he was praying that God would bless him in every circumstance. And that's pretty common for Paul. Right? He's saying, I want God to bless you. Then he confirmed that he personally wrote this with his own hand. Now pay attention to what he said he personally wrote. Because people get confused. Paul did not write these letters in their entirety with his own hand. Okay, Paul had a problem with vision. Okay, and you could, there's several scriptures in the Bible that will prove that to you. But he had a problem with his vision. That's why he had Timothy and a lot of people writing his books for him. He couldn't see very well, right? And try, imagine writing if you can't see very well. It would probably look like my handwriting, right? That's what he's talking about. Uh, so but what he's saying here, he said, uh, uh, I, Paul, write this what? Greeting with my own hand. What Paul was saying was he probably wrote the introduction, the salutation, and, and the farewell himself. That much he wrote himself, and that was kind of a, an earmark of the Apostle Paul. He wanted people to know the salutations I write, because I want you to know this isn't some cold, heartless letter. I do care about you. I just have a problem. I can't see that well. That's why people normally write them for me. But I do write the salutations because I want you to know I do care about this letter, and that's what he's talking about. But the bulk of his letters were written by somebody else. Um, but I, here's the thing. These two books, I love these two books. They're two of my favorite books in the Bible uh, because they teach you so much about the end of times, so much about how we should behave in light of the imminency of Christ or knowing that Christ uh, his imminent return. He could return any moment. I love all that teaching in here, but one of the things that I really like about this is how Paul is so bold to a church that's doing well. He's still instructing them because he wants them to continue to do well and do even better. See, a lot of people, when things are going well in a, in a church, they just abandon it. He didn't. He always made sure that if you're doing good, you can always do better, and if you're not doing good, you need to get there. So I love these letters. I think they did a great job. Uh, Paul did a great job of covering so many tough issues. But we're going to go ahead and stop there. And uh, if you would, please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always give an invitation. If there's someone here who doesn't know Jesus, or, or maybe you're just struggling, and I'm no one's judge, if you'd like me to pray for you, just make eye contact and put your head right back right on. Bless those people, and I will pray for you. I literally pray for those faces. I don't just say it. Bless those people. If you're watching or listening, God has you. But, you know, as I read this and as I prepared for this message, I was thinking one of the big reasons I think Paul was so concerned with their behavior, their beliefs, and how they taught was he was passionate that the Lord could come back any second, and that could still be the case. There's nothing left to happen. And just like Paul was so passionate about seeing them serve, I want believers to be passionate about serving again. Because there's enough arguing and squabbling going on. We need to serve God in love, draw people to him, and our focus needs to shift away from all the crazy stuff that distracts us, all the social medias and things like that. They have their place, but it can't be your focus. And we need to focus on why we're here, enlarging the borders of the kingdom. That's why we're here. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I thank you for your love and your mercy, and I thank you for your kindness. God, it's just unbelievable to me that you can love people like us. We prove generation to generation, that we can't be good. Even when we trust you and are given eternal life, we're still not good. It's simply by your grace. You love us so much that you give us the opportunity to go to heaven, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. And not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus did. God, let us always remember that. And if there's someone here who doesn't know you, 
Remind them you don't care what people think of them, what their reputation is. You don't care what's happened in the past. If they will believe that what Jesus did was enough to guarantee their eternal life, you've promised to give it to them. And I pray if they make that decision today, they contact us. But God, for those of us who are believers, it is so easy to get distracted. We carry devices that can pull our attention off of everything else in this world in seconds. God, let us pause before we get involved in other things and ask ourselves what we've done in this day, in this moment, to get closer to you and to draw other people into that same situation. Give us a passion to serve you and a passion for ministry and a passion for people. We just pray, God, as we leave here, you would keep us safe. Let us live what we profess. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet, we just pray we would come together one more time and give you all the praise and glory you're so worthy of. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.